Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode two of the Pixel Trash Podcast. I'm your host, VJ Preziosi, and joining me on this episode is my buddy, Sean Conway. Sean is a comedian from Pennsylvania that I met at an open mic back in October. He's a multi-talented dude. He's a comedian. He's an actor. He's a singer. And he's working on a project right now that's going through um, Kickstarter. So here's a quick clip of Sean's stand-up, and we're going to get straight into the podcast. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not affiliated with any Greek life, uh, like frats and sororities, not really my thing. But I've always been confused by Greek life. Like, the thing about it is that Greek life has a reputation of binge drinking, hazing, sexual assault. And it's also the name of an entire country of people. I've never been to Greece, but it just bears the question, is that what Greece is like? And if so, what the fuck is going on over there? Like, are people just blacking out on the street? Like, are they not raising their youth, they're just hazing their youth? Like, they don't have baptisms, they just have like initiation. They just like roll up to the baby's crib, oh, so pussy! After that, nope, you're one of us. You're part of Greek life. You're in Greece now, bitch! You think you're sucking titties now! Greek life! I switched a whole fucking alphabet. You just gotta learn, bitch. Yeah, I've never been to Greece. But alright, joining me now is Sean Conway. Sean, how the hell are you, dude? What's up, man? Yeah, uh, me and Sean, actually, we just did a show together uh, on Saturday in uh, Ben Salem, PA at, uh, what, Water's Edge, Comedy on the Crick. Yeah, man. It was a good time. They were a, they were a chatty bunch, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're wild, dude. But they're fun, and there's many of them. <laughs> How many of those uh, shows have you done now since uh, they came back? Dude, I have done, since, well, since they've come back from, from the pandemic, I, I've probably done, like, every other just because I, I've I've gotten lucky with some acting gigs now that um, COVID is kind of loosening up a bit, but I've probably been to like four or five of them. Uh, yeah, and you're doing stuff there outside of just um, comedy on the crick, right? You're doing stuff with uh, Matt Bridgestone. Yeah, yeah. I was in AC. I did a spot up there two weeks ago. That was a ton of fun. Where the uh, his uh, AC comedy club? Yeah, at uh, Tropicana Casino. Oh yeah, wow. the casino gigs are usually like a little weird situation because it's this weird mix of uh, at least originally because I went to the uh, I did a show at Bridgestone at the Taj Mahal and it was like a casino and a strip club. It was like this weird mix of old people and perverts. Nice. So I haven't I haven't seen uh the new setup firsthand like his, what he's got now, but I remember uh, seeing a video from one of my friends and it, it looked pretty decent. It actually, came across more like a a diner or bar show than an actual like casino. Yeah, well, first off, the place is called Kiss Kiss Nightclub, so <laughs> I, I can understand that people would mistake it for a strip club, and that's what I said when I first, like, got on stage. There was this guy's, like, nine of them in, like, suits. It's like, are you telling me that they came to watch us do stand-up? Well, like, we're, they're wearing, like, their AC hoodies. Like, I'm wearing, like, you know, I'm not I'm not naked, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> but, uh- Very when uh the way I met you, I met you at um the uh, Triggered Radio open mic in uh, the Levittown parking lot because uh, for you guys who don't know, like uh the open mic scene for the last uh well since COVID has been very hit and miss in a lot of ways. But um 
the one that they were doing in uh, Levittown was actually like a pretty good open mic because there was actually an audience and we had two c- pretty competent hosts running the shit and we could actually like get a good gauge on material because so many of the mics, at least in uh, Jersey, I don't know if it's the same for you over there, but we have like you go to a mic and it's just all comics and it's like, oh, well, you guys you guys can identify the writing tricks. You're going to know what's up and you're going to go, Oh, okay. I see what you did there. I'm not laughing, but I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that because uh, COVID, because everyone is so excited to get back into the swing of things that the open mics have actually been almost a little bit better because people are like, I just want to see anything. So right. you, you see like a couple people and even like the comics themselves do pay attention a little bit more because it's like so rare to see anything live. When you have an actual turnout, it's like, holy shit, we are enjoying it because the Water's Edges shows we've been doing, they're like 60 people. Like it got so big in one room in the cabin that we actually had to go to that, um, what, the fucking gazebo they have back there, whatever the fuck it is, which I... Yeah, I kind of I'm not going to lie. I kind of liked the um, the the back room a little bit better because uh, the, the vibe of it had like that, like log cabin feel to it. And it was like, I don't know, something about warmer lighting always like amps the crowd up more ever since they got to the back of Zebo with that white churchy kind of lighting. It's it's still good. It's still a great time and it fits more people, but it does have like a yeah, work a little bit more to get the crowd uh, amped up. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I, I like the the smaller space better. I've always liked tighter spaces. Well, yeah, because uh, you you want a low ceiling because that's why so many comedy clubs are in freaking basements and shit. You want to contain the laughter and that just echoes throughout and makes everything sound better like acoustically. But when you have like a high ceiling, it's a little weird. But, you know, you can still work with it if you have like the right lighting and setup. Like I saw Sam Morell at the Stress Factory uh, last month. And they have this giant ass fucking tent. Like it's yeah. to the point where it's like, how is this even still considered outdoor? I feel like I'm like <laughs> just inside. But you know, they had the warm lighting because Vinny Brand knows what he's doing. He's got warm lighting. He's got a it's a backdrop, but it's like a brick pattern backdrop, like you know the classic shit. And it was still a great show, even with all the weirdness around it. We've gotten lucky with the uh, Water's Edges shows that we can just. We can still jump into it. And when we were doing the uh, the parking lot mics, I remember you stood out to me because so many of the comics there. I mean, we had like, you know, the old hacky dad stuff with some guys who, you know, were just and the newcomers. And then a lot of the more experienced people, uh, we were just, you know, we went off on being, you know, vulgar and dirty and just disgusting in a lot of ways. But you came up and you were like not clean or anything, but you were like very professional. You you had your <laughs> shit like down and like it felt like damn this is like i'm looking at a pro and then you told me you've only been doing comedy like what you said two or three years about like i four years some four years okay moments okay okay but even then like your shit just like felt like so like rehearsed and perfect (laughs) that i was like oh damn because you that's why you stood out to me so much because like i'm looking at like guys like you know with my sense of humor and it's just like okay you're just uh kind of a degenerate but then you come up (laughs) and i'm like oh okay this is like a a pro is that just was that a vibe you were going for when you started or is that just who you are kind of dude i mean i've been doing theater for like 11 years so like <laughs> everything to me it's it's like gotta memorize my lines you know like those are my jokes my jokes are like like a, a performance you know i i think of it so much like that whereas a lot of people their first introduction to performing arts is at a shitty bar in levittown <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah so like you know like it, the 
the atmosphere that they start in is a little bit different. You know, I started at like Shakespeare and all that shit. And then I moved to dick jokes and, you know, all this other bullshit. Do you consider do you consider that like uh, beneficial for you or was it kind of like a rude awakening when you go into like uh, the filth, so to speak, like the more grimy club type type humor? Because I remember growing up watching uh, Comedy Central seeing the theater shows on there, like on the Comedy Central Presents and all that kind of stuff. But then when you go to an actual comedy club or a bar, it's like such a different type of vibe where it's like you watch a theater thing, you can get applause breaks just for making points and saying obvious shit. But in a club, you have to fucking work at it. So was that something you had to adjust to or did you feel like you picked that up pretty quickly? Yeah, it's definitely something that I'm still working on. Like I have the advantage of having good stage presence yes. off the bat. Right. But I also I I struggle a lot with authenticity because when I do my jokes, I'm I'm always trying to say a say a joke that I think is funny, but it's not necessarily the right joke for me. So sometimes I'll say a joke and it's like, why does this guy sound like just an asshole? Right. <laughs> you know? it, just, it just sounds strange coming from my mouth. It's like that's because I'm doing a character who's doing a joke, not being Sean telling a joke. Right. I've noticed that too. Cause I've done a, I think last month I did a show in the fucking hood and <laughs> I, I had a, actually a great set. It was mostly crowd work too, but then I listened back to the way I talked in it. And it was like this, uh, I was definitely talking more slang than I normally do because like, I, you know, I'm a little streetwise. My parents are from the hood, but like I'm, I'm not. So I'm like listening to me talk. I'm like, Oh, that's, interesting because i'm telling my you know my regular joke but in a kind of streetwise way but but you feel like that struggles uh or that contrast with your authenticity yeah the 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 only time that you can i mean i'm of course i'm working on it i'm getting much better at it like i was really bad when i first started but like you see the true sean when when somebody like says something that i roll with like when i i start doing like a little bit of crowd work and i get off the rails Especially when I'm in Levittown, like I did a show for Bridgestone in at Gleason's Bar in Levittown, PA, and like people start getting a little bit rowdy. I just start shouting. I'm like, you are fucked up right now. Give me your phone. I'm calling your boyfriend, you know, like just getting like absolutely nuts. And then that's when you see like a little more of my like rage. You see the genie come out of the bottle a little bit. <laughs> I noticed you were doing that a little bit on um. Well, this past Saturday, because they were, like I said before, they were talking a lot this Saturday, and you, uh, you definitely went in there. But once you got their attention, they listened to the rest of what you're fucking, you were fucking saying, because you went yeah. out towards the, uh, you were like what third to last, right? Yeah, yeah, third to last. Yeah, so by that point, everyone's fucked up, and they're just like, Is it over? yeah, I, I got work in the morning. I'm, I'm gonna have a hangover. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was, I mean, I'm still saying that was a great show. I'm not trying to talk shit about Water's Edge. I fucking love it there. But uh, I, w I wanted to ask you, like, who are, who are your uh, biggest influences when you were starting out? Because you strike me as a John Mulaney kind of guy. I don't know if that's an accurate <laughs> description, but that's where I get off of you. I don't know if you got uh, any particular influences that really you, you, you went off on. I mean, I, w I would definitely say that if I had to compare myself to a comedian, I would say that John Mulaney is up there. Um, but I actually, oddly enough, I, I'm really into like Bill Burr yeah. and Anthony Jeselnik. Oh yeah. Oh, and cool. I, I think that, um, I, I really like comedians who can do stuff that I really want to do, or I don't feel like I personally can do. So like seeing Bill Burr do like, 
you know, just like go off on crazy rants and then seeing Anthony Jeselnik had this crazy, like macho aspect to him and like almost dip into dark humor. That's like so different than me. And I'm like, man, I would love to do that shit. I know how that feels. Cause like when I was uh, coming up, I was like real. Yeah. Bill Burr was like number one. I was really into Christopher Titus, uh, Attell and Doug Stanhope. They were like my biggest uh, like influences. Oh, and Mike DiStefano. But, uh, you know, you see me on stage. And when I started out, I was definitely more into act outs and being over the top and definitely kind of a little rambly. But like as I've gotten older, it's like the low that energy. I just don't feel it anymore, even though I respect that type of humor so much. It's just not me. So did you feel like when you were starting out, like you tried to emulate these guys and eventually you just kind of started growing into your own voice? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would agree with with you that I also started with tons of act outs. And I think especially COVID actually cut that off a little bit because when you only have this, it's all about the writing. Oh yeah. With the zoom stuff. Yeah. Have you been doing a lot of the uh, zoom shows? I mean, I was doing a lot of stuff when it was really bad, but now right. I've, I've really tried to avoid as much as possible. How did you, did you enjoy doing those? Like, were they, would you consider them good gauges? <laughs> Dude, I was doing some shit. Like I, I wouldn't just do zoom. Sometimes I would do like people go on Instagram live. So then you would just be like telling a joke and then no one responded. And then you would get like, boom, haha, boom, LOL. Well, if you're doing it on Instagram, Graham live, there's so many times where people are just scrolling through their feed and they'll just pop up on your video and you could just be in the middle of the joke. They won't know the setup. They won't know the premise. So when you get to the punchline, it could be a great punchline. You wouldn't fucking, wow, that's a, that's a dumb one. Instagram live. <laughs> Dude, it, it is tough. But I mean, like I said, it's getting better with, uh, we're getting, uh, I don't know. How is it with uh, PA with uh, the COVID stuff? Cause we're getting a lot more um, outdoor stuff going on now. Like uh, we used to have to close everything by 10 PM, but now uh, I think they've lifted that restriction. Everything's going pretty good so far. Like the turnouts still aren't great, but it's better than what it was and we can go later and there's more comedians. So is it kind of the same for you guys? Yeah, no, I mean, we've, we've had lots of great things open up. I mean, in terms of mics, you know, things are pretty consistent in Philly. You know, you're able to do a mic just about every night. And then there's shows popping up. Like um, I've been doing, you know, things here and there, um, trying to get more into Philly in terms of like actual shows. But I think that it's definitely really stepping back up and I'm very excited to see it. Which, which one is uh, your favorite mic in Philly right now? I really do like Two Street. Oh, really? I just saw Jay posting yeah. about that on Facebook. Is that good? Yeah. And, and why it's good, in my opinion, is just like we were talking about with the room at Water's Edge. It's a tighter space. So everyone is kind of stuck together so that everyone, when somebody laughs, it's like it's contagious. And I feel like people are listening so you can really actually gauge if your jokes are working. Oh, okay. So uh, you said you before you were uh, you were doing uh, theater stuff when, when you were uh, younger. Did, was uh, stand-up something that you really like kind of grew up with or was it something you wanted to give a shot and then like just kind of fell in love with? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't really look at any standup until I was in high school. Like, oh yeah. Halfway through I, I watched, I'm trying to think of like the specials. I think I watched like Bo Burnham and like Crystalia and like, like one or two other like comics, but I wasn't like a huge fan of it. And then when I got into college, there was a class called art of standup comedy. And I was like, well, that sounds cool as shit. Yeah. So I took that and then like class of 30 people. 
and everyone gave up on it and i was the only one who like kind of kept going with it <laughs> so when you were starting out with uh stand-up did uh how, how much influence did you take from that class did like did you really find it helpful oh for sure for but sure yeah and i i still operate on the idea that you can teach comedy to people i was just about to ask that okay cool because i was talking to you know mark uh Giobel? i don't forget how you say his last I name i saw him yeah, he's been he's been to he was at the uh, Water's Edge and he was at the Levittown Mics and he's uh, just starting out. And, uh, you know, I was sending him. Have you heard of Judy Carter's book? No, no. Oh, it's a book about, uh, you know, just learning stand up comedy. It comes with there's actually a workbook to go with it. And I sent it to him because he's just starting out. He's asking me for tips. And he was like, this is kind of like um, homework. I was like, yeah, but like. You know, because I, I don't I agree with you. I don't believe that idea that you're either born funny or you're not or you can't learn comedy because there are definitely people that are more naturally inclined to do stand up comedy than others. But it's still something you can learn at a certain point. Your natural abilities run out and you're mm -hmm. going to have to learn the tricks. Yeah. What I think that you are born with that is genetic is you need to be born with the capacity to suffer. That's very true. You you need you need to go to a mic and people to fucking hate you. Yeah. Have, what was your have, what's your worst show you've ever done or your worst uh, even beyond just a show maybe your worst mic worst set you've ever had? One time, I mean it's it's hard to even say if this was like counts as a performance. One time, my friend like had a photo shoot and she was like, "Oh, we're gonna have you do stand up after." And I was like. <laughs> Okay. So there's like this, all these random characters, like just like the people who live in the crevices of the earth are like coming to this little photo shoot. There's like eight people. And then they're like, all right. And they all just sat on the floor and watched me do stand up as she filmed it. It was like the strangest shit ever. This dude was, he was literally like on a, on like a PSP. I don't even know who the fuck has this anymore. Is a PlayStation play. portable. Would you play it as you're watching someone? No, no, that's weird. Dude, this is like the middle of the day, like 2 p.m. Natural lighting oh. coming in. And and he like heckles me in the middle. He's like, that was a good joke. I'm going to finish this up real quick. I'm like, no one fucking asked, dude. <laughs> so how do you feel about uh, how, how you are with um, hecklers? Like, do you feel like you've gotten uh, a lot better at dealing with them? Like, do you have shit on standby for them? I've gotten a lot better. Yeah. yeah, I have I I have like little things that I prepare ahead of time. Like I I love when people's phone goes like when somebody's phone goes off because I always I'm ready for for whatever I want them to answer that phone. Oh so yeah, yeah, I yeah, can yeah. respond. <laughs> I, I I did a set. You know, uh, bar thirteen in um yeah was it Delaware? Yeah, have you ever done that one? I haven't, but I I know I need to. Yeah, it's 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 a good room, but I was there on um, this past week, and we had this redneck dude heckling like everyone and luckily um i was i was number two on the list so he the first comic went up and that guy just got shit but i was able i have my own jokes on standby and then um i you know whatever i can piece together looking at this dude so i go on stage and wait for him to say something when he finally says something i just unload it on him and it, actually it kind of saved my set because you know it's an open mic so there's new stuff that's not working there's old stuff that's not working whatever but that was what kept my set going was just shitting on him. But then you get to the point where fucking Otis goes on stage and just 
annihilates this guy. Like in the, to, you know, I mean, were you there when he was digging into the the guy who tried roasting the crowd at Levittown? Dude, that was so bad. <laughs> Otis or the guy? Well, I mean, the guy, the guy really deserved it because you should never start an open mic by saying, "I'm going to roast you guys." Also, it's my first time. Well, it, it, the thing is, like, it, you can do that, but it, first of all, it's got to be funny. But also, you got to be able to fucking take it. If you're going to be able to dish it out, you got to take it. Like, he was getting legitimately offended. And I don't even think what Otis was saying was pretty rough, but that's just no getting to know Otis now. I'm like, that's just his personality. <laughs> that dude I, left, too. What's up? Oh, yeah, he, he <laughs> did laugh. He did leave because Otis just dug into him so fucking hard. I, but he went after this guy at bar 13, like, so much harder to the point where I was like, Jesus Christ, dude, take it down a notch. But I, what what would you describe as like your best technique for a heckler? I know you said you have a material on like, you know, standby, but do you if you see someone heckling throughout the show, do you go on stage and in, just initiate right away with them? Or do you find it's better to wait? That's a good question. If, if somebody has been consistently heckling throughout the night, I, unless I have a really good joke for it, I try not to give them the attention. I feel like sometimes you can, you can get a, an audience to quiet down just by the way that you're, you're like kind of addressing them. I see a lot of comics who will just kind of like ramble through. And like, if people are talking in the audience, they'll keep rambling through. But you, if you hear people talking a bunch, you kind of have to dial back a bit. And maybe you can even say something to the audience, you know, like poke fun at somebody or just like just slow down and make it clear that like you're not going to keep going until they give you attention, like a right. teaching, you know, right. exactly. Like, uh, do, you, do you ever do this? You have like a joke where it's like it kind of bombs a little bit. So you go, OK, let me go to the audience, fuck with one of them and see if I can work myself back to a good set. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What was the first thing you noticed when you transitioned from like thinking about comedy to actually doing it? Like what was your rude awakening? I mean, the thing about me doing comedy is it, it wasn't like I didn't go from thinking about it to just like, I'm going to do this open mic. Boom. Like right. I had, I had like a couple classes to think, you know, to really think about like, all right, guys, write down like a minute of comedy, you know, think about this workshop with people. So it was like a pretty smooth transition. But I would say my first like actual open mic, it took a long time, dude. Like I was I would I would just be like stuck in class, like, you know, with like a couple jokes and I would never feel like they were going to work there. So I had to make like this super tight five minute set that I knew for sure that I could say, even if it bombed, I didn't care if it was funny. Like if people didn't like it, that's fine. I just knew that I could start it and end it. I knew exactly what to say. So yeah, how, how often do you write things? Cause I've had this issue where you write things that like, I personally don't think this is funny, but it's like a, a crowd pleasing line. Cause you, if you read a certain room, you're like, okay, they'll love this. I think this is hacky shit like that. I'm sure you've heard that, heard that, um, Kim Kardashian, like a all fours joke I've made at water's edge a couple of times. I fucking hate that joke. It's so stupid. <laughs> I do. I hate it. It's so stupid. It's so cheap. It's so hack. It's literally the first thought in my head when I read that news article. I didn't even like work it out in any way. I was like, fuck it. This will work. And it always crushes there. So do you ever have like material where like, I hate this, but I got to bust out all reliable for this room. <laughs> I try not to, to say jokes that I don't like. 
generally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think like, I mean, I, I, I always, if I'm, if I'm in a town, like for instance, when I'm in Levittown, I'll always tell a Levittown joke, like, you know, make fun of something, even if I'm like, this is kind of hacky, but the location alone is strong enough to be like, Oh, I know what that is. <laughs> Oh yeah, I definitely done that in PA. Every time I'm in, every time I'm in a different state, I just go to shitting on Jersey, which is so funny because I'm one of the few people that actually love New Jersey. But it's such an easy thing to shit on. Let's be like, oh guys, New Jersey's beautiful, especially when it's in my rearview mirror fading away from me. Ah, ha, ha, ha. I'm garbage. They love that shit. But uh, so have you gotten? Be- Do you feel feel like you've gotten a lot better at like reading rooms? Be- besides, uh, obviously, like your hometown. Like when you go somewhere and you're not like say first on the list. You, do you scan the room and feel like, okay, I know what can work here. Yeah. Yeah. Usually if I'm not first, I mean, even if I'm first too, like, you know, when the host is up, I try to find, I try to find something to get me started. Like I'll try to find one thing in the room that I can say, even if it's like not like hilarious, I think it's just a nice way to like open the audience. Like, Hey, like we're both here. Right. Right. It shows that you're present because I've definitely seen a lot of uh, comedians when they're starting out, they just go up and go straight into their set, straight into their written material. One second, the host is talking about midgets and this guy comes up talking about his day job, not addressing anything. And it just feels like, dude, you're not here right now. You're not talking to me. You're reading a script. So you feel like you, you've gotten good at just being present on stage. Yeah, that's that's one of the biggest things that I've had to work on. And that's yeah. why it's so important to me to have that in the beginning, because I am one of those guys who did go through my script and he, I still do. It's not like, you know, I'm perfect, but I really try to get like some something I can get in the room because it just makes my first joke just so seamless. Yeah, exactly. Because it just it feels so much more natural when you uh, have that, that joke that you want to work in. But like, say it's a joke about, uh, I don't know, midgets and you're like. Well, how the fuck am I going to work this in in this room? I'm going to have to feel the crowd out a little bit, somehow like draw them in and then go to midgets. Because I've actually found a lot of the time that um, just just regular crowds are actually pretty easy to figure out. Kind of like at a certain point, you notice the patterns that people have when they're in mass. But then you transition that to uh, or contrast that to open mics where it's mostly comedians. And it's like, I how the fuck do I do this with you guys? I'd have to like literally know half of you in order for this to work. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's why at open mics. I, it is, it is genuinely practice, you know? Oh, yeah. You just try throwing everything to the wall and seeing what sticks. When, since you're an, an actor that you said you struggled being a uh, present when you were at stage beginning, because I know a lot of times that's just like, you know, you're doing your performance and you're, you know, you're trained not to look at the camera that's looking at you. And then with stand up, it's like, you got to stare direct. The audience is the camera. You got to look them in the fucking eye and the camera is always changing. So you got to focus on a different person. So was that, that was hard for you originally. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent a whole decade being taught, like you can't break what is called the fourth wall. Right. Right. Now there, I mean, there are some plays that do and it's stylistic, but yeah, like I, I had had that idea. It's like basically I'm I'm doing my jokes to a glass wall and then you're hearing them, you know, and I had to retrain my brain like we're all in this room together. I'm just the one with the microphone. I think I, I forget which book I read. It's just, I forget. Well, I, it's like about comedy, but I forget the author, Stephen something. But <clears throat> he had this great point about um, theater acting, how he went to see a play and someone in the audience sneezes and he made it a point like 
the woman on stage did not even acknowledge that, did not say God bless you or anything, because that completely kills what you're supposed to be doing. It ruins that. It breaks down that fourth wall. But with comedy, it's like you could just dig into that person for just sneezing and you, it's, you have to acknowledge it. Otherwise, it's just a little weird. Like when I saw Sam Morell, uh, he was in the middle of a joke about, um, I think, uh, his first gay experience as a child or whatever. And then a cop car drove by with the sirens blasting and without missing a beat, he went, oh, shit. All right. I lied to you guys. This was actually last week and it was with a nine year old boy. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he had that shit on like just ready. So do you have stuff like just ready for like, um, I don't know, being present or is that something you just uh, work out in the crowd? Like do you stay when you're in the crowd, do you, uh, do you know, put together a set in your head or do you just have your written shit ready to go? Yeah. Like when I, when I'm in the crowd, I usually like, I, I, I know the jokes in my head. Like I could think of the list and then I'm like, okay, wait, something just happened. All right. Boom. Got to add that to the front of the list. It's like, okay, so now I have two jokes and then the start of my set. Okay. Have you ever had this happen where like you put together something good and you're like, Oh, I can't wait to get up and use this. But then um, like say the person who was the cause of it leaves the room or like goes away and it's like, oh, now I can't use this anymore. It was such a fucking killer line. Yep. Oh, and man. I'm notorious for like, for still telling the joke anyway. And then just not being as good. <laughs> Yo, same. I'm so guilty of that shit too. Because like, when you feel so good about it, you're like, I, I have to get this out. And also it, uh, it still shows on present, even if it's uh, now slightly dated, I guess. So what you did uh, theater, was your, did you come from a theater family? No. No. Not no, at all. Really? Yeah. I I mean, like my, my aunt was a singer, not like professionally, but like she sang in church and stuff. I I just always loved movies. And then I, I got into musicals my, uh, I'm sorry, seventh grade. It was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I played Mike TV. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I can't see you as Mike TV because, oh, well, no, not really, actually, because he's such, a, well, they're all little brats, but he's like the most like, He's over the, t- <laughs> yeah, he's like the most over the top ridiculous one. Wow, what, what, what? How many plays have you been in then? Can't, can't, dozens. Can't tr- dozens. Yeah, I've been in, I've been in plenty of shit. I mean, well, that's the thing with acting is you know that's what's fun about it is you get to play like different characters. Like, what was your favorite one? I mean. Maybe a little cliche, but I mean, I, I, I did play uh, Jean Valjean in Les Mis. I knew that one was going to come. It's like, how, how could you not say that that was the best? I mean, it was insane. How do you, I got to ask you this now. How did you feel about the, uh, that Les Mis movie with uh, Russell Crowe a couple years ago compared to the stage adaptation? I mean, it grew on me. It grew on you? It grew on me, but like first seeing it, I was like, oh. Like Hugh Jackman was, I, and I love Hugh Jackman, but Hugh Jackman like wouldn't use his falsetto. Which I is guess like the head voice, so it, it would just be like, "Bring him home." I'm like, why? Why are you saying like a Muppet, dude? You can just sing soft. He can sing too, so that didn't make any sense to me. And then um, fucking Russell Crowe, Jesus Christ, he was sleepwalking that whole movie. <laughs> Prisoner four sixteen when your parole began. It's like, dude, can you? care please yeah he's, yeah he's not that scary it's just like like dude like this is Hugh Jackman you gotta step up your your game like yeah come on did, did you watch a lot of uh, musical movies growing up honestly no really dude I, I mean I it I never like 
I never like indulge in the things that I like doing. Like oh, yeah? I ran track in high school. I ran it in college. Like I was a division one athlete and I did not watch track. Well, I mean that, that one I think makes a little bit of sense. Cause like, it's kind of like NASCAR. How many times can you watch him go in a circle before you're like, okay, I yeah. think I get the idea. So you didn't yeah. watch a lot of, uh, you didn't watch a lot of theater movies or musicals. I should say that's interesting. Oh. Yeah. I, the first time I went to Broadway, like to see a show was halfway through high school and I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I actually would much rather prefer a show where I'm like in the front and is a smaller crowd. I would much rather prefer that than having the nosebleeds in like Phantom of the Opera. You know what I mean? Right, right. No, I know how you feel about that. Sometimes the nosebleeds are good for like, I think they're good for stand up because you're there to listen to material, especially if it's like a comedian who doesn't do like a lot of act outs. But when you're in a, a theater environment, you do want to be close because there's so much that goes into it there's the set design there's the costume design and of course the acting that you want to get a good gauge on because i was uh when i was in elementary school we went to see this live performance of um a christmas carol and they were really fucking good and we had great seats so like that was one of my first exposures to live theater and it was actually kind of like interesting because you know when you're a teenager at that point and you've never really experienced it you think of it as this stupid shit that women drag guys to and guys go so they can get laid. But when you actually see it in person, it's like, oh, there's an actual like craft to this and a technique to it. Do you feel like um, there's a stereotype with uh, theater that just is, I guess, like back in the day, it was like, you know, you thought of things like Glee and it's like, oh, this is kind of cringeworthy. But do you feel like that's going away now as more people are becoming, uh, I don't want to say progressive, but more accepting of creative arts? Yeah, I mean, of, of course, like when I was in middle school, of course, people made fun of me. They're like, oh, you're gay, like bullshit like that. Um, but I, I think that maybe it's because I'm gr- I'm growing up like into, you know, maturity. The people around me are mature. So it's like not it's not weird anymore that I would be like an actor. I don't know if that's translating to middle school or if people in middle school are still like, oh, faggot, like. I don't that, know. That's a good question because like you see what they're growing up with on um TikTok and stuff, and it's yeah. like uh you know the Paul brothers they're like some of, they make some of the most garbage heinous ass content I've ever seen, and kids kids watch it just fine as long as they don't say like an offensive word here and there as long as they're not saying like you know faggot or retard that's that then it's cool as long, they can still tase that dead rat as but don't say faggot or retard that's inappropriate. Right. So it's a weird idea to think like how are kids growing up now like where they're like exposed to like this garbage like actions like they just gloss over but when it comes to certain words then they tense up a little bit right yeah it's like the 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 toxicity is still there but it's like it just minus those like couple trigger words right right so are your parents like are they super supportive of like everything you've done like uh creativity like did it take them a while to get used to you doing all this performance art. Yeah. My, my mom has always been super, super supportive and she still is like the whole way. And my dad is, is very supportive too. He, he's very like traditional, like he's all about nine to five jobs and stuff. So it's a little more tough for him to like get behind it, but he is still supportive. So, I mean, I really, I'm very blessed to have great parents who back me up. Do you work a regular nine to five job or are you just strictly uh, acting and performing? So yeah, I've been I've been DoorDashing to make some extra money. Uh, I do this driving route at night where I uh, I drive around picking up uh, specimens from uh, animal hospitals and I drop them off at a lab. 
So some that's, wild shit. <laughs> that, that's a lot more interesting than just picking up fucking five guys for the third time that week. Yeah. But I know DoorDash because uh, my mom, uh, she a school bus driver, but because the, most of the schools are still closed, she's been doing DoorDash and um, Grubhub, and she's actually been making a fucking killing on that shit, which is like surprising. But she also, my mom knows the neighborhood really well, so she knows where like the rich people are. So as, have you gotten good at that? Do you know like where all the good places are? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I, I know my shit with DoorDash, dude. How, you said, how long have you been doing that? Probably like four months. Four months? Okay. So yeah. like, did, uh, what were you doing before that? Was the, like, uh, did you have like a regular job that COVID kind of just took out? Yeah. I mean, I, I graduated college and then uh, I was off for a month and then I worked as a teacher for, um, like a, a summer camp, a theater summer camp. Oh, okay. The Riverside theater. Yeah. And I'll be doing that probably again this summer, but that's only for a month. Right. So after that, I picked up a job working at a retirement home as a food server. And, you know, it was great, but like the money would just wasn't there. So I left there. And then that's when I started doing DoorDash and it's been great. You know, the money is, is great. Do you enjoy, uh, do you enjoy teaching uh, theater to people? Like how is that? How does that feel to be like, okay, uh, I've learned it. Now I'm teaching it to you. Is it weird to be on the other end of it? No, I mean, I, I love it. Yeah. I, I actually, I mean, I teach like little kids, you know, like there are some like kids who are like teenagers, like 13 and 14, but I mean, it's like the basic shit, playing games, learning lines, very simple. Then did you grow, when you were growing up, did you want to, oh, I guess you kind of touched on this before where uh, you didn't indulge in the things you do. So you didn't really indulge in uh, acting when you were growing up. Like, I'm sure you watch movies, but when you're growing up, you weren't like, oh, I want to do that. Movies, I would say, were like the only thing that I did love watching and doing. Like I loved acting in film and I loved watching films. Who's your favorite actor? Right now, I would say Jason Bateman. Oh, yeah. Really? Love Jason Bateman. What is it just that um that that uh, sardonic attitude that he has where it's like you could he can snap at any moment, but he's holding it back with just pure sarcasm. Dude, yeah, it's the same thing as with the comics. It's just that idea that he can play any role with just little fine tunes to his overall calm personality. Yeah, I noticed with a lot of a lot of actors, like they still feel like themselves, but they somehow completely change who they are, even if it's just a little change they make. They somehow are a completely different person. Because I see Paul Rudd in a lot of things, and there's some things I see him in where I forget I'm watching. Paul Rudd, even though he hasn't, he looks exactly the fucking same. I mean, he has since the nineties. He hasn't fucking aged either, but like he just makes a little change to his, to his personality in the movie. And it's like, I'm watching Paul Rudd, but it's like a different kind of dude because you see him in like, say uh, role models where he's a fucking prick. He's an asshole. No one likes him. Contrast that to Ant-Man. He's like completely lovable and he's like schlubby, but that like, there's like almost no difference like physically or personality wise. He just makes a slight change to himself and you buy it both ways. But then you compare that to actors who really go ham when, when it comes to uh, changing themselves, like someone like Christian Bale, who just cannot decide on a weight. He just constantly goes up and down and it's like you really made an effort for it. But it, it's, it's almost a little bit more impressive when someone can get a similar effect by just barely changing themselves at all. Yeah. It's, it's super impressive. And especially like I, I have been known to like 
overact a bit, you know, especially because I come from theater and I, and I, I really like doing comedy. So like to be able to tone it down is a big thing that I also work on. I mean, you, it definitely, I feel like that would help your comedy too, because there are certain things you can do as an act out that maybe like, okay, I'm going a little too over the top here. And then there's other times where you're like, oh, maybe if I go a little bit higher, but I can see like how that can influence, one can influence the other. Like, do you feel like your brain just has to like switch gears when you're performing comedy and then performing theater and then performing just in front of a camera? I mean, I actually think that both they have, they've helped me out so much especially comedy and film because in both of those it's authenticity is so important and being present because in theater you can get away with stuff you know you can you you know you're you're going a little bigger you know so you can kind of get away with some stuff because the guy in row g isn't going to see that you had a bad day on your face but in a film if you're showing like that negative energy or any energy that isn't your character's you can see it because the camera will pick that shit up. Right, right. Do you gravitate more towards film acting or theater acting personally? I mean, I've just started in film acting. So, oh, okay. Yeah, I, like professionally. Like theater, I did all throughout high school, all throughout college. And then film, I really just started professionally because, you know, COVID, there isn't many theater opportunities. Right. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure out which one, but I think that film is where I'm going to be headed for, for now. I feel like that's a natural progression too, because as you get older, like I have less energy than I used to have it. Even though I'm like, like the healthiest I've ever been in my life. It's just like, as I get older, I just get less energetic. I care less about act outs. I care less about like just general things. Cause I'm just like, I'm, I, I identify as tired as the, <laughs> uh, as the old joke goes. So I feel like when you transition to film acting, it makes a, uh, that makes sense because theater acting, you're very bombastic. You're very over the top. But I've also noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this too. Have you seen any uh, Korean movies? No. No? I've noticed with a lot of them, the actors, they go super cartoony. Even like in uh, horror movies, like I saw um, Hashtag Alive and Parasite. And when mm-hmm. they're going like, um, when they're trying to do emotional stuff and going a little bit over the top, they go over the top. It's like borderline like Buster Keaton acting. <laughs> Like because they, it's just their style, like and how it's how the whole movie is done. Like you watch it and you just go, "This makes sense within the world it's in." So it's interesting when you look at like uh, acting, like you know, across the ocean or across the world, where it's like this is you know they're still considered high cal- caliber actors, but the style they do with their filmmaking is just so much different than what we do. But uh, so as an actor, have you felt like um, comedy or uh, your acting career has put you more in connection or more in tune with your emotions, I should say? Because with comedy, for me, I felt like because, you know, you have to build up such a tolerance and a thick skin when it comes to stuff that you almost become numb to certain things because you just build up that shell. Do you feel like theater and acting in general keeps you kind of grounded and in touch with your uh, emotions and personality? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would definitely say so. Like when I, when I do research for characters, I, I always try to come up with like a backstory and shit. So like, I always have to have all, all those emotions available. And I think that with comedy, like I, I wouldn't say that like, I've, I'm like numb, I guess. I feel like I still have a lot of emotions available to me. Um, but yeah, for sure. Like I actually, 
comedy um, is probably the reason that I, I got my film agent. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because when I had mentioned to them, you know, when I was in the prospects of, of being represented, I had mentioned I was a comic. And he said something like, film, film industry is really looking for stand-up comedians. I don't know if it's because, like, if stand-up comedians are are an asset for filmmakers because they're able to be more um, present because they're so present in their live performances or if it's because of like their improv ability, like with crowd work. But I think there's also an element where when you have a comedian do a dramatic role, people tend to notice that more than a dramatic actor doing a comedic role. Like you can see, like, I mean, not that he was like in super hardcore dramas, but like when Zac Efron was uh, doing drama and then started doing comedy people didn't really pay attention to it that much but then you look at someone like adam sandler when he did like uncut gems and people were saying that he got snubbed for an oscar over that movie yeah gone well that's that's the thing that's what's funny is like people people will think that they're a better actor because they've seen them do all these funny things and then they're doing serious so they can see the range but like with a dramatic actor, you don't always see the like that type of range if they're not doing comedy, which is interesting because like so many dramatic actors, like they have such incredible fucking range where it's like you just they transform themselves completely. But then sometimes uh, people just take it for granted when they do um, a comedy role where it's like, oh, he was funny in this, but that's not what I like to see from him. It's like it's still hard to act as a comic because you have to have timing you have to have personality you have to have charisma and you have to pull all that from you have to contrast that with the dramatic stuff you did like when people saw like jim carrey going from you know comedic roles to like more dramatic roles everyone was like all for it but then after a while people were getting stagnated on it where they were like oh jim carrey he's not fun anymore and then he goes back (laughs) and then he goes back to comedic roles and they're like oh jim carrey now what happened when he was really trying it's like, can, can this fucking guy win? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, dude. Well, I mean, he had such a distinct brand. He was like that crazy guy. He was a cartoon character. and But then you contrast that to how he was, you know, acting in something like, say, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where he felt so grounded. But I just feel like dramatic actors, they don't get that same respect when they do transition to comedy because it's not as easy as people think it is. It's a lot of fucking, you got to yeah. feel it out. Like, uh, Oh, I think I forget what the name of that movie was, but it was with Vince Fong and uh, oh, I forget. It's called The Breakup, I think. I forget who the woman was, but she was like a you know veteran film actor, theater actor. Contrast that with Vince Vong, who was like an improv comic, comedic actor. And apparently, they actually really didn't get along on set at all because he would ad lib and stuff like that. Do you, mm. ever, do you ever do you find situations where you're acting off somebody and you feel like all right, this person does not get it or they're like they're not giving you the performance you need for yourself yeah i mean i haven't worked enough in the film industry to like have too many of those scenarios but like sometimes i'll i'll want to do like some you know i want to riff a little bit you know like do a little bit of stuff that's off book but like some of these people are just they're not they're not having that whether whether they're they're so hell-bent on the script that they that they're too rigid to do like any improv or not even improv like just like being in the moment um and then there's people who are just like bad actors <laughs> there's yes, nothing there's, you can do about those guys there's there yeah, there's there's that too and you said you took uh, acting did you take acting classes yeah, yeah yeah i i mean i i graduated with a second major in theater 
And then I've been taking acting classes uh, with the Actors Lab with uh, Brian Fox, and that's for film. That's been awesome. Oh, yeah? Tell me about that. Is it, you feel like that's really helping you? Yeah, dude. I mean, acting class, to me, acting class is like the open mics. You you have to do it. It does cost, like, money. You know, uh, it, it's you know, it's a class. You're, you're basically going to school in a sense, but you, you're going in every single week. You're, you're either doing a scene or you're, you're doing like a mock audition, something that would resemble what you would be doing if you're actually auditioning for a TV show or, you know, whatever, like something in film. And it's just so nice to come in every single week with something you're working on, talk to people, you build that network. Yeah. Did they let you pick the material you want to try out? Yeah, I mean, they they have like a whole list of scenes you can use, but like I can also bring in my own material. Like, for instance, if I know that I'm working on an audition or if I'm working on a film, like I'm working on a student film this weekend, I can bring in a scene from that film and be like, hey, uh, could I work on this instead of doing like a, a different scene? They'll be like, hell yeah. And even like my original works, too, like I, I've written some scenes that I filmed just for my reel and we've brought those in as well to try them out. It's it really is a great class. Have you tried uh, getting into uh, writing, like not just roles for yourself, just like, you know, roles in general, like maybe like a sketch or even like an idea for a pilot you maybe want to film? Yeah, I I do have a screenplay that uh, is in its fourth draft. Oh, OK. That's sweet. Yeah. How long have you been working on that? I, I finished the first draft in like first week of September. So like okay. I, I worked on it. I started probably in like late summer and, uh, and now, and I had this, like the first three drafts were pretty similar. They were just like really cleaning up the first idea. And then I had this like crazy, like change of the whole story. I was like, fuck, now I have to do that. So I do the whole fourth draft and I know there's going to be a fifth draft, but I'm happy with where I'm at right now. So do you, cause I said before, when I first saw you, it seemed like a very, like, um, almost professional kind of guy. Do you consider yourself, are you very structured when it comes to like writing? Like, do you have like a whole like system you have prepared for it? Because for someone like me with really bad ADHD, it's just every fucking day I'm like trying to force myself to do something. But then the dopamine receptors in my brain are like, nah, bro, you should totally make a protein shake right now. Yeah. You, should, you, should, you should play a guitar for a little bit. All right. You did a sentence. Oof, that was tough. Time to take a break. So yep. do you feel, do you feel like you're like, um, pretty like structured like do you have like a whole system for yourself when you write oh yeah i mean i am i am very structured when it comes to writing i mean comedy not as much but definitely like my screenplay i followed the exact same structure as like the blake snyder's book save the cat which is like a huge book on screenwriting i've i've looked at uh Dan Harmon, who's the writer of Rick and Morty. I've looked at his story circle. And I actually like I've written out every single part of that story circle and written, okay, where does my screenplay fall into that? What's what what would you consider to be like um like a great like screenplay? Something like maybe you saw like a movie or a theater performance and you were like thinking back on it, and you're like, Jesus Christ, that was tight as a drum. There was no wasted space there. Well, I mean, I I have two two thoughts there um there it's surprising but there there is a a film in the film industry that people say is like the greatest screenplay ever written and like even though it's like you know like it's it's not like anything official but like it's kind of like one of those like unofficial like perfect screenplay and it's die hard really yeah Mm -hmm. i could have sworn you were about to drop citizen kane on me 
No, no, it's it's surprising, but Die Hard, I, I, I've heard people say, is like the greatest screenplay in terms of like it is it works perfectly from like the start of like every little thing like when he takes his shoes off in the um in the plane in the very beginning that ties in like halfway through when he's not wearing shoes and they shoot the glass to like cut his feet like it's everything like ties in it's very it's very interesting have you ever have you read anything on like um stuff like directing like little techniques people use because i'm a big alfred hitchcock fan i fucking he's my favorite director and watching like video essays on how he would uh shoot scenes to convey feelings that you didn't even think about like there's a scene in vertigo with uh it's jimmy St- i forget the other actor's name but it's jimmy stewart and the other guy and the other guy is sitting on a, a couch and jimmy stewart's kind of standing on a, a platform above him but as the guy is like convincing jimmy stewart to take on this case they switch places basically and the guy who was um, doing the video essay was saying that hitchcock was establishing there that their roles have reversed the man who's trying to pitch his case, he's now in power. And it's one of those subtle things you don't think about. But when you look back on it, you're like, holy shit, like this person mm-hmm. knew what they were doing. And Star Wars did something similar with um, A New Hope with the, uh, the the rebellion ship goes, you know, in front of the camera. And then you see the Empire ship and it just spams the whole screen. And it's so fucking huge. And it like establishes uh, this because it's also shot at a low angle. It establishes how big the empire is, what their reach across the galaxy is. So, did you watch a lot of stuff on like uh, picking up subtle cues like that? Yeah, I mean, I I watch that for like certain certain movies. Like one of my favorite movies is The Dark Knight, and of co- of course, <laughs> and um, and I I've seen so many videos on like the analysis, like all the breakdowns, you know, like like the character arcs of like the main, you know, of the three main characters, like Harvey Dent, Joker and Batman. I've looked at like the acting, all of the shit. Who would you consider uh, your favorite director? Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. What was his yeah. last movie? Tenet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How was that? I really liked it. You really liked it? It is an absolute mind fuck. That's what that's what I was interested in because it kind of reminded me of uh, Inception a little bit because with that, uh, I think it was an upside down city or some shit they were showing off. Yeah. You, have you seen Tenet? No, I haven't gotten around to it because I've, I've heard mixed things. That's why. Dude, I, I mean, for me personally, the, the reason why I love Christopher Nolan's movie so much is because I do like to really have to pay attention. Like you can't just sit and it's not a popcorn watching movie. You have to fucking get ready. You, you better have peed before the movie, like get ready for this shit because like, I mean, tenant is it, basically like, Hey, aren't time travel movies complicated? Well, fuck that. This is twice as hard. <laughs> I mean, you remember when, um, inception came out, every fucking joke was, it's a dream within a dream, within a dream, just cause it's complicated. doesn't mean it's cool or it doesn't mean yeah. it's good, which is such an oversimplification. But I've noticed with uh, Nolan in particular, he definitely has instances where he's definitely a little, I would say a little too dialogue heavy, where it's like uh, the Dark Knight. I love it, but there's like, I would say there's a little too many speeches in that movie where characters are saying how they feel rather than acting how they Mm. feel. But then apparently Dunkirk, people were saying that he toned that down to the point where they're like, we need a, can can somebody talk, please? Yeah. Dunkirk, I would say, is like the only Christopher Nolan movie that I don't really like. Don't really. That's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm really I'm a big fan of like 
I'm a big fan of like thrillers. So the reason why I like Christopher Nolan is I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of like the dark Knight Cause it's a crime drama. I'm a big fan of like memento because that's kind of like a, you know, like a crime drama, psychological thriller, you know, these types of movies like um, the prestige, those are really cool things to me. But when it comes to like war movies, I feel like I just, I've seen it so many times that like once Dunker came out, I didn't feel like it brought anything new to the table. Now. I mean, so many people would disagree with me and they have ever right to, but not a huge fan of it. I mean, like how many times can you see a movie about world war one or world war two or the Vietnam war before you get to the point where like, okay, yes, I get it. It was a war. It happened. Yeah. Like after saving private Ryan, I, I don't really feel the need to see another war movie. Right. Cause when, <laughs> you, when you see something that does it like perfectly, you're mm. like, well, we're good then unless you can do something new. Like what I kind of liked about, um, Wonder Woman was that like, yeah, okay, it's a World War One movie, but they threw in a superhero. So a little bit more fun there. And it wasn't like focused on the war. It was more yeah. about like the side journey towards the end of the war. So like something like that I can get behind. But I remember I think the movie was called War Horse, that Steven Spielberg movie. And I watched like I think an hour of it and I fucking fell asleep because I was so yeah. bored because like how many times can you watch that? So yeah. for yourself, do you prefer doing comedic roles or you, you prefer like dramatic roles? Like, do you really feel like you're stretching yourself a little bit more when you have something harder to chew on? I mean, I, I definitely right now in my career would really like to dive into comedic roles. I'm very excited to do dramatic as well and try everything. But I, I think in terms of my own career, I would be smart to really hone in on like the comedic side and then once I am able to break through on that end to expand to more dramatic. Right. I like how uh, with um, acting, uh, Je- I mean, you ever heard Jerry Corley? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That point he made, I, I think his teacher made to him where she said, oh, look, Jerry thinks that his his jokes are so funny. He doesn't have to perform them. Like, it's one of those things where you think about it. It's like you have to p- really put emotion into what you're doing on stage, but and you can get that more when you're, you know, used to acting behind a camera when it's like, I have experience doing this, so I can use that to inform my comedic side. And if you have, especially if you have experience with doing comedic roles, like it informs your, I would say it probably informs your standup even more. So is it, was that, is that a motivating factor? Or are you just trying to stay like, um, kind of within the vein of comedy? Well, first off, before I before I answer that, I want to say that I bought the Jerry Corley um, series. Oh, yeah? yeah? Yeah. How is that? I got to ask because it's expensive, so I was interested in it. But is it worth the money, you'd say? It's pretty good. I don't know if it's worth the money, especially at like the, you know, at our point, you know, you, you've, well, you've been doing stand-up for like eight years. Uh, nine. Nine? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that he's going to really give you anything extra. What I will say, though, is that if you're looking to do late night, that is, it, it is useful. Okay. Yeah. I would say, here's something I've thought of like the last um, couple of uh, years. Do you feel like late night is kind of dying? I mean, I, once again, I never really watched late night. <laughs> so uh, the answer is yes, because you're not fucking watching yeah. it. I actually was having, I was on a podcast uh, last week and I was having this conversation with somebody about Netflix because when we were, you know, coming up when we were growing up comedy was it started off as um i would say hbo and maybe showtime and then comedy central became the thing 
and now Netflix is a thing. But I was telling this guy, and I want to see if you feel the same way. But you feel like Netflix is kind of dying a little bit, and it's going to transition to YouTube because the comedians that I've seen on Netflix, like some of them where it's their first special, I watch it, and I'm like, this isn't good at all. Like mm-hmm. people would watch like um, Comedy Central presents specials, and you'd be like, well, no matter how I feel about this person's comedy, they earned this special. But when you see, at least for me, when I see Netflix, I'm kind of like, well, what app did you blow up on? Is it TikTok, Vine? Because this doesn't feel like something that you worked for. I feel like they gave it to you because of your name. And then you look at someone like, say, Mark Norman, who no studio wanted his special out to lunch. So he had to put it on YouTube for free. And all the comments are people just talking about how great it is and how much better it is than anything on Netflix. So do you feel like Netflix is going to fade out and YouTube is going to be where comedy gets posted? I think it definitely could. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't, I don't really post many stand-up videos on YouTube or on like Instagram or any of that because like, I don't want, I don't want to show my work and then like have someone, you know, if they wanted to see my show, then realize like, oh, you're just doing the same shit. I th- I might've mentioned this to you on Saturday. I don't remember. I was on three hours of sleep that day, but uh, when I saw Sam Morell, um last month, he was great, but I knew like every joke because I'm such a big fan of his podcast and his um his special on the roof, which he was doing some stuff from that, too. So it was like one of those things where it's like he's great, but I know all this stuff. So I've for me personally, I found it's good to post like uh, clips of like maybe crowd work or retired jokes. Was that be something you're more comfortable with? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the thing about about YouTube is like because you can just post anything if you're going to move everything in comedy to YouTube, you have to be careful about how you're going to present it because in, even in Netflix and definitely in HBO and comedy central, it's clearly a professional setting where you are telling hey, like, these are, these are my best jokes that I have right now. And most of those comics, after they tell those jokes on Netflix, they retire them, you know, or they retire most of them, but on YouTube, like, are you going to retire your jokes after you tell them on YouTube or are you going to keep doing them? And and also, what if somebody films your set and then that blows up? It's like that's you know? a, that's a good point. Uh, well, a lot of professionals now they're having people um lock up their phones and stuff, but they're still posting like you know clips here and there of like not worked out material. But it does suck when um you know a comedian gets their shit recorded and then leaked, and then it's like, well, that bit's ruined now. Like I mean. It's cliche to say, but that Louis C.K. Parkland bit where it's like that probably could have been a really good bit. But because it got shown online and blown up, it was like, well, he didn't get a chance to finish that. But I feel like uh, with um, YouTube comedy, like, you know, like you were saying, like um, when you watch uh, Comedy Central theater, comedy, professional stuff. But I feel like with YouTube, because it's more low budget and more uh, rough around the edges, it gives like this more more of this feeling of authenticity and it just, you just feel like you what would be the word for, I don't fucking know. You just feel like uh, more grounded, like it feels more real. And I think that was uh, what was the initial appeal of YouTube was back in the day, like around 2007, 2008. I mean, mo- what was on YouTube most of the time? It was fucking people sitting in front of their webcam, just, you know, singing fucking Maya, he, Maya, who, whatever, Numa, Numa, <laughs> like goofy shit. Uh, but people gravitated towards that because it just felt so authentic. So do you feel like um, if comedy went to YouTube and specials started going to YouTube, do you feel like 
the they would feel more authentic and more human than they are when you watch them on TV? Well, I think that the concept of a special would change. Like, you know how on YouTube right now we have stuff like um, Louis C.K. like attacks Heckler or, you know, like Whitney Cummings shuts down Heckler or like crazy audience. I think that those types of videos would come up more like you would get 20 minutes of like best crowd work from Andrew Schultz or, you know, like um, best jokes about college from Burt Chrysler, whatever, you know. Um, I think that those would be like the, they would be like the mini specials is like the more categorized stuff. So it's so customized. You're like, Oh, I want to watch crowd work right now. Oh, Oh, I want to watch this specific special about like about black lives in New York, you know? Right. Right. What, what I think I like though, about the YouTube specials I've been seeing besides the fact that a lot of them are more cre- are, you know, better than what I'm seeing on Netflix is that a lot of them have, a really out there thoughts and they're like a joke a minute. I don't know. Have you heard of Zoltan Kazans? I think is his name. That sounds familiar. He has a special on YouTube and uh, it's completely clean. Like it is. I don't think he curses. He doesn't say fuck one time throughout the special and it's filmed what from what looks like a fucking GoPro that he <laughs> stood on a table or something. But the special itself was like actually really like the set was great and it hit me later that it was all clean and it was like one of those things that motivated me personally to be like yo i should try writing some more clean material because that's something i kind of struggle with so i want to ask you do you have like a certain material uh, a certain humor style that you personally struggle with that you want to do but you don't feel like you've completely worked it out yet yeah i I know that like a year or two ago, I really did switch over to like more clean comedy just because I, I felt like I, I felt like there was a. Not that there's like a, a prestige to clean comedy, but it's like if you can be funny clean, then you can be funny dirty as well. Right. Um, something that I do struggle with, though, once again, of course, the authenticity, but also with that is content that it, I'm not afraid to have people judge me by. You know, like if I say something a little bit off color that will, you know, that could potentially offend somebody. Like if I did political humor or I, you know, I brought up humor that was that was maybe offensive in another way that that is definitely something that I do struggle with. I was just talking to my buddy, buddy yesterday. I, I always I'm always trying to make people uh, like me. You know, <laughs> that's my thing. And I have definitely leaned into that more in the last year and a half. And I think it has gotten me some success in comedy, but at the same time, I think I do need to be a little more risky with my jokes. I, I can totally sympathize with that. Cause I remember a couple years ago, I was definitely like, um, I was such a huge Stanhope fan and his persona on stage is just rambly garbage. And he's like <laughs> such a, I would say degenerate he's a fucking degenerate but that's kind of my humor and that's what i'm into so i would tell jokes as a degenerate like i you know the jokes could be working they could not be working but what's the problem with that is like the difference between me and stan but stanhope has a fan base where they know he's a degenerate they know he's a yep. piece of human garbage so they go in expecting that and they're getting what they want but when you're just somebody at a comedy club that nobody knows you're someone in an open mic no one knows and you're doing that persona people will just think oh what an unlikable asshole they don't give yeah. a fuck what <laughs> your influence is and then i guess in your case like you know you said you're trying to be like uh 
professional almost, or just try to, you, you're trying to be not necessarily clean, but like have this era of this aura, I should say, of knowing what you're doing. There's definitely, when you're in a bar, it's so easy for somebody in the crowd to look at you and be like, well, this guy thinks he's better than me. I'm sitting here on my Monday night and he's here in his fucking nice fucking shirt. He just <laughs> ironed it. Tell me about his nice job. Fuck him. <laughs> but yeah. that's, so, yeah. So like I could, I could totally sympathize with that struggle. Do you feel like uh, you're getting better with it though? In terms of like us, yeah, like you said, you're working on being present, but do you also feel like you're uh, getting better at pre- presenting yourself the way you are, but also dipping into that more, that edge that you've been working on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting there. You know, I, I haven't really tried too hard because I have, I've, I'm still been, I've still been reaping the benefits of like doing cleaner stuff. Like it's been working. So I'm like, well, why stop now? But I I find myself sometimes, you know, not saying jokes, like maybe not even trying them because I just feel like, ah, you know, like, I don't know enough about this topic. It's like, well, I got to go out. I got to go out and bomb. Like, I just have to try it and have it not work. So then I can be like, okay, here's what I really need to do. So then I can make a good joke that is real. You know, my buddy and I were talking about this, that, you know, I can make these jokes, but they're, they're so safe and they're not reflective of what is happening in the real world. Right. Do you ever have instances where like you, you sit down to write and you have like a goal of the day where you're like, I'm going to just do clean shit today. Or another day where you're like, I want to do stuff about maybe urban stuff. So like stuff that I'm not too familiar with. Like you ever have like daily goals when you're writing? I don't really like, I don't focus too hard on like those specific types of goals. Like for comedy, because I, I do prioritize acting first over comedy. I don't, I don't dedicate the same type of energy towards comedy. Like, probably you do or like like some more people who are focusing more heavily on it so like most of my writing really comes in like just free form like however it comes to me i have to write it down um if there's any structure yeah i don't i don't really focus on like a specific topic sometimes i'll think of like i'll hone down on like crowd work or i'll hone down on like something more general but i don't get too nitty-gritty like that right okay and I can see why you have, if you prefer fucking acting to comedy, I can see why, especially because acting is such a more, I would say, involved process because you really have to put more energy into that. But what you were saying about, like, you know, you have free flowing thoughts, like, because I remember back in like uh, 2017, I definitely had a lot of instances where I had free flowing thoughts that were really funny. But when you remove them from my stream of consciousness, consciousness and you just throw them out of my mouth it just sounds like a mishmash of garbage that has a funny idea in there but it doesn't have a structure to it so i'm just saying something and if you remove like say you remove the word fuck from it it doesn't work at all because i actually quit doing comedy for um two almost two years in like uh 2018 because i i noticed that with myself was like i was coming up with material that i just it was working, but I didn't like it because it didn't feel like I I felt like I was just coasting off of vulgarity Mm -hmm. rather than actually having something substantial to say. And then when I did things like maybe look at Jerry Corley's book, listen to uh, Judy Carter's book, uh, Stephen something, whatever's book, like it lets you know, like what, how to frame the framework to put your comedy in. So you look back at those garbage things that you thought of that stream of conscious that you had that you thought was funny, but then it lets you 
structure it in a way where it's like, okay, this is definitely a joke, but, but that's because my sense of humor is just rambly vulgarity, but because you have like, you definitely have a different sensibility than me. So do you feel like your stream of conscious, like when it comes to you, when the jokes come to your head, do you feel like they're already like pretty close within a, a classic joke structure or do you feel like uh, you got to tweak them a little bit when you first get them? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I'll think of jokes right before I go to sleep. I'm like, this is the greatest joke that anyone's ever written ever. And then I wake up in the morning. I'm like, why the fuck did I even write? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then, but then even still, I'll be like, this joke is still amazing. Fuck that. And then I'll go on stage and be like, Nope, wasn't good. I was right. (laughs) Um, So I have that, but I, I, when I, yeah, I, I usually think of, a lot of times I will think of punchlines first and then I'm like, Oh, now I got to make a premise to match that, which is like good in the sense of like one-liners, like, but at the same time, I find myself pigeonholing myself in like random premise premises that like, if I actually thought of a better premise up front, I could come up with a much better punchline or several punchlines. Do you, do you have like a, so, cause I definitely noticed with myself, there's certain topics that I'm like kind of repetitive with, but like the joke is like solid, but it's like a, a subject I have a lot of jokes on. But there, I've especially recently, you know, I try out those jokes in different areas, and one part of the joke may hit, and then another one doesn't hit, and then the same thing with a different joke. But then I find out that I can just mishmash parts of two different jokes together, and it becomes this unique entity that's completely separate from my writing, or like completely separate from the original subject that just works so do you find yourself having like uh do you think you have like repetitive uh subjects that you hit on yeah 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 i mean because it's probably because i I just got out of college i have a lot of material surrounding college you know surrounding college parties um surrounding like relationships in, in college uh and and sometimes that hits really well and there's you know there are people who are like older or they don't really care about that type of humor that it doesn't ring as much with. But once again, the same as what you said, there's, there's certain things that really do well. And it may be because the topic is college, but the theme is something deeper. You know, the theme may be like um, being vulnerable or like being insecure around peers, you know, as opposed to it's, you know, it's in the cloak of college, but it's really about this. So I think that finding those things like where the the deeper theme is more relatable to everyone, that's what will hit everywhere. So since you've obviously you've seen yourself on uh, recorded a a million times, do you look back on, say, a stand up performance and notice like, okay, I'm giving off this vibe. So I should maybe try to write something that fits that vibe or maybe I should adjust my my stage presence first. Yeah. Um, I used to, I mean, like when I started out, like everyone, I said a lot of hacky shit, like about sex and like, I still like some of that is still like in my act. Like if I, in my whole repertoire that I would still say, um, and that vibe is not my favorite. And I would really, and like, I look back at some videos and I'm like, "Ah, I don't really feel like that represents me anymore. So like, if I'm going to bring that joke up again, it has to be in the frame of how I now present myself. I do. I know exactly how you feel. There's like certain like jokes I've, cause I have like some clips that I have there. I look back at them and I'm like, 
that's just not me anymore but it's a good joke so it's like how do i adjust this because this joke is like sometimes you look back and it's like a timeless joke that could still work but it's just it's got to fit you because th that's something that came from a, a 19 year old's perspective and it's like a solid thing but if i said that now people would be like what do you fuck grow up <laughs> yeah yeah like why why are you saying that after you said that other thing <laughs> right exactly so uh, tell me about this project that you've got coming up this um kickstarter or is it an indiegogo yeah, yeah so i my buddy and i we wrote a we co-wrote a film and i starred in it he directed and produced it called diamond in the rough that was last summer it's on youtube it's it's now in um you know we've submitted to a bunch of festivals but now we're coming back with our second film uh he and i are co-producing it he's directing it I'll be playing a smaller role in it. And then we actually brought in a friend of ours who was going to be, he wrote the script that is called the associate. Um, and this time we're bringing in like an incredible class, like a, a cast of people, a lot of people from my acting class from the actor's lab. And then we have an award-winning cinematographer, but now these things cost money. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're trying, you know, the last film we did off of like almost a $0 budget. But now we're going to try to go for a $4,000 budget. So we have this Kickstarter right now. It is $2,000 because if you don't make the money in your, your deadline, you actually don't get to keep any of the money. Right. Okay. So you get, you set yourself to a fixed funding campaign. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it holds us accountable to really like make sure that we hit the goal. And, and also the people who like donate, they actually, their money doesn't go out of their bank account until we actually successfully like get everything. See, those are my favorite kind of projects where it's like, we have to commit to this or nothing because that lets the audience know and the contributors know that you're being genuine. Cause I definitely see some GoFundMes and where it's like, what the fuck is this? Why are yeah. you doing this? But this is something, and then, you know, with a GoFundMe, I don't think you get your money back if you donate, but this is like something you're really committing to the project. So one last thing I want to ask you before I let you go, because I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, what would you consider to be your proudest moment as either an actor or comedian, something, a project you look back on and you're like, fuck yeah, that is, that's what motivates me. Oof. There, there are some good moments. I, I will say it was like the perfect combination of my acting and stand up. Um, have you ever heard of devise theater? I don't think so. No, it's basically where uh, a group of people will in one way or another, depending on your, your tactics, will create a show together, a play. So my senior year of college, we, it was like a class of 30 of us through just doing many different like scenes, like just making stuff up, like on the spot, a lot of improv, a lot of this and that we made an entire like two hour play and it, and it was good enough that it made it into the uh like this like theater festival for college kids in maryland and i played this character that i created uh who sucked like there was like an open mic and and everyone who was there was actually just doing like poetry and spoken word and i was doing stand-up but it was like shitty stand-up so it was like funny because it was so bad right and, and i i went on stage and and the audience was loving everything they had gotten up to this point and when i got on stage and was doing that bullshit people were roaring like there was like i think there was like 400 500 people in the audience and they were just eating it up dude and 
when I was in that moment, I, it was just like every single laugh was like a, whoa, like it just made me realize like, damn, like this is what it could be like every single time if you put in like the hard work. Definitely, definitely. And some people, they just they don't want to put in the hard work. They feel like it's just going to be easy. No, there's a fucking craft to what we do. And I mean, that bit you do about the I think I told you this a million times, but that COVID bit you do is so well structured, so well written. And then uh, the, the act out you do as the old man. It's such a perfect encapsulation, I think, <laughs> of all your talents put together in one bit because it is so solid. I love it every time you tell it. I don't give a fuck if I've heard it before. I'm still <laughs> laughing every time I see it. So, um, yeah, uh, where can people find you on social media, Sean? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on Instagram at uh, Sean Michael Conway. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Sean Conway, YouTube, Sean Conway. Uh, I'm on TikTok, but I don't really use it. <laughs> yeah. And then I, um, my Kickstarter is under my name, Sean Michael Conway. It's the associate film, if anyone would be interested in donating. All right. That sounds awesome. So thank you so much for coming on here, dude. I know, like I said, I'm a little, little bit of rambling because I'm still working out the uh, kinks of this podcast, but I really appreciate you coming on. You are one of the first people from the water's edge I wanted on because of just who you are as a person and your comedy is something I just really fucking respect. So guys, thank you guys for watching. Give Sean Conway again. Thank you for coming on, dude. Thanks and, for having uh, me. Of course. And we'll see you guys on the next episode of the pixel trash podcast. <laughs>